Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Ab Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. Since God has called him, life for Abraham has been very far from boring. Since this pagan man was called by the one true God to leave his home and go into some unknown land, he's had run-ins with Pharaoh, he's waged a military campaign against kings to rescue his neighbor Lot, 
He's had a strange encounter with God where he's seen a vision of animals cut in two and a smoking pot and a, a torch passing through those pieces. He's been told by God that he and his elderly wife, Sarah, will have a child through whom he'll have as many descendants as the stars of the sky or the grains of sand by the sea. But then he's fathered another child by his servant, Hagar. And as a pensioner, he's even taken part in believers' circumcision. But then the really big miracle happens for him and Sarah. Despite being very, very old, they have the child of promise, Isaac, the promised child from God, the one through whom Abraham would have all these descendants. This child was born. It took 25 years between the promise being given and Isaac actually being born. But still, Abraham believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. That is 25 years of faith in a seemingly impossible promise. But then if you fast forward, Isaac grows up, becomes a young man, and God speaks once again to Abraham. And that brings us up to our reading for today, where we'll be thinking about grace and sacrifice. So please keep your Bibles open to Genesis 22, and we'll be thinking about it in three sections. We'll be thinking about verses 1 to 8, which is faith, verses 9 to 13, which is substitution, and verses 14 to 19, which is blessing. So faith, substitution, and blessing. And please remember that this story takes part against the bigger covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, the one where the animals were cut in two, and God takes all of the covenant obligations on himself where Abraham has already been justified by faith because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All of that is still true here. Abraham still believes God and Abraham is still justified. But for Abraham, what did it look like for him to live out that justifying faith in reality? To still believe God even when his faith was tested? Well, starting at verse 1, think about how Moses introduces this story. Verses 1 to 8, the faith. We read that God tested Abraham. What does the test look like? Well, Abraham has finally gotten this promised child, the one that he and Sarah were crying out to God for. And yes, it took a long time, but God did come true on his promise. He did give Abraham the gift that he promised. But have you ever been in the situation where it is so evident where folk prefer the gift to the giver? Folk prefer the one, folk prefer the thing they get instead of the one who gives it. We see that theme in the New Testament, like when Jesus heals the ten lepers. Only one comes back to say thank you. The other nine didn't want Jesus. The other nine didn't want the giver. They only wanted the gift to be healed. 
Is that evident in our prayer lives, or do we just come to Jesus when we want something? Jesus, I want to do this, or I want to go there. Please make it come true. Amen. Because, folks, Jesus is not a genie. If God tested us to choose the gifts that he's given us, or the one through whom every good gift is given, what would we choose? The gift or the giver? That's the lesson from Job, isn't it? Like Christ, the righteous man, who we know is truly righteous, because even when he's lost everything, his heart still cries out to God. So in Genesis 22, in verse 2, God tests Abraham. Abraham, take your son. And please notice the emphasis. God doesn't even recognize Ishmael, his other son, as a legitimate heir. He calls Isaac the only son. It's almost like God is underlining the value of Isaac. Abraham loves Isaac. So far, so good. So Abraham should take this precious son, the son whom he loves, and head into Moriah. And then the test starts. God says, offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. At this point, how do you think Abraham reacted? Sleepless night? Worry? How is he going to get out of this one? What's he going to say to uh, Sarah? What's he going to say to Isaac? Because don't forget, folks, that Abraham is the same guy whose strategy for safety in Egypt was telling Pharaoh that his wife was actually his sister and that Pharaoh was pretty much welcome to her to save his own skin. But here in verse 3, we don't read any scheming. We don't read any strategy. We don't read any trickery. Instead, we read that Abraham starts off by doing what God has told him to do. He takes his donkey, two of his servants, his son Isaac, supplies for the burnt offering, and they go to Moriah. It's obviously a trek. We read in verse 4, it took them about three days close, uh, three days to get anywhere close to where they were supposed to be going. But then in verse 5, we read the faith of Abraham. There's not a big song and dance about it, but Abraham's faith is very clear in this verse. Listen to what Abraham says to the two servants. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. If you write in your Bibles, underline that and put big stars around it. Because Abraham believed that Isaac would come back down that mountain. Why did he believe that? Well, think back to Genesis 15, to verse 4, where God promises Abraham that through his very own son, this promised child, that he would have descendants, and they would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's the promise that Abraham has believed. That is the promise that Abraham has believed. We know already in verse 2, that God counts Isaac, this promised child, as Abraham's only son. This son will have descendants as numerous as the grains of sand 
on the seashore. Even his name, Abraham, means father of many nations. Every time Abraham heard his name, he was hearing God's promise for 25 years. Father of many nations. If Isaac dies here, then that means that promise of God cannot come true. But God's promise will be fulfilled because God has sworn by himself. Where's Abraham's faith? How does that faith pan out here? How does his faith work through this test? Let's keep reading. Verse 6 tells us that father and son went together. The son is carrying the wood to his own sacrifice. Abraham has a knife in one hand and a torch in the other. In verse 7, Isaac asks, where's the lamb they're going to sacrifice? Still, Isaac doesn't know that he will be the sacrifice. But then in verse 8, we see again the faith of Abraham. We read, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So where was Abraham's faith? Abraham's faith was in that the Lord would make a substitution. Isaac would live because this animal would die in his place. God would keep his promise. And Isaac would go on to have many, many, many descendants. So is Abraham's faith justified here? Well, let's read on. Verses 9 to 13, we read about the substitution. And it looks like it's a really, really, really close call. Verse 9, we read that the altar is built and Isaac is on it. Verse 10, the knife is in Abraham's hand, ready to kill his son. Is Abraham's faith misplaced? Do you think he had a moment of doubt where he, did I misunderstand that stuff about the offspring and about the stars and about the sand? Was it going to be like Hebrews 11? Where, uh, where Abraham knew that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Well, if you read verse 11, this is the good news to Abraham. The angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and speaks. Abraham, Abraham. Verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Did Abraham love the gift more than the giver? No. Abraham loved God. And he loved his son Isaac. He loved the gift. But Abraham had faith in God that God would keep his promise to him. Even in the test, even in this awful test, his faith was real. And because Abraham's faith was in God, his faith was not misplaced. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes. What does he see? A ram. So the ram gets sacrificed instead of Isaac. Substitution. Then verses 14 to 19, the blessing. In verse 14, what happens? Well, Abraham calls the mount the Lord will provide. And in verses 15 to 17, we find that the angel of the Lord speaks again. 
Because Abraham's faith was real, or a living faith, as James interprets it. The promise that God has made all those years ago still stands. Abraham really did believe God, and he really, really was counted as righteous. And there's nothing new in verses 18 or 19. These are the same promises that God's already given. The offspring and the blessing are simply a repetition from chapter 15. But the faith, the faith that brought Abraham righteousness, that has proved genuine. Abraham's faith was evident in his works, in his obedience. Was his faith in his works? No. His faith was in the Lord. He knew the promise of God's blessing. He believed that God would have a substitution that would bring life. He believed the promise that in this child there would be many descendants and that in his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That is one of my favorite passages in Genesis because it is so clearly a picture of Christ. Can you think of any other picture, any other story in Scripture, where the son, the father's only son whom he loves, is carrying the wood to his own sacrifice? It's the shadow of Christ carrying the cross to Calvary. In verse 18, when we read the offspring, singular, the offspring shall be a blessing to all the nations. Well, we know from Paul in Galatians Galatians 3, that that offspring is Christ, this man, Christ. We even hear Christ speaking here. That's why the Christophany, the pre-incarnation appearance of the Son of God as the angel of the Lord, at the end of verse 12 says, you have not withheld your only Son from me instead of from God. Because even in the Old Testament, Jesus is still God. But I wonder if you picked up on something that Abraham said that didn't quite line up. If you have your Bibles open, please read verse 8 with me. Out loud, please speak up. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, out together. Then read verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham was, by faith, expecting the lamb. Not even a lamb, but the lamb. But here, Abraham didn't get the lamb. Abraham got a ram, a male sheep, not a lamb. Is that important? Yes, absolutely, it is important. Because it means that in Abraham's lifetime, the lamb that God would provide as the substitution wasn't realized. But it does point us forward, points us towards not just a lamb, but the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not as a burnt offering, which literally meant just that the offering would ascend into heaven but instead as an offering that came down from heaven 
to become one of us, to walk in our shoes, to know the pain, the suffering, the hurt of life under the curse that this world is racked with. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is great news, and I hope it's helpful. But so what? So what? What does that mean for any of us sitting here today? Well, I think a good application is actually in that opening. God tested Abraham. And this is where maybe we will hear something that we don't want to hear. And I'm very wary that many of us are going through hard times. But it's the question, isn't it? Does God still test people today? Is God testing you? Is God testing me? And before we immediately say, no way, God doesn't test people, we have a victorious life, listen very carefully to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The test that Peter's referring to here much the same as Abraham. It's how do the righteous live by faith in this world? How does a believer live in this world? How does someone who's justified live by faith in this world? Because it is difficult to live as a Christian in this world. And notice that Peter says, when, when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Not if, Folks, are we prepared, well prepared, for those tests when they come? Because fiery trials will come to test us. And scripture says, don't be surprised, get yourselves ready. If you speak to folk who say they used to be Christians, but are now atheists or agnostics, you will genuinely find a tragic thread Generally, they made some profession of faith, in all honesty, had fairly limited engagement with scripture or church or discipling. Then some form of testing came. Maybe societal pressures, maybe the temptation to conform, maybe a tragic event. And they simply walked away from the faith because if God was real, that never would have happened. Or they end up ignoring what scripture says about God and they make up a God of their own imagination that strangely reflects their own heart more than scripture. That's called liberalism and our denomination is plagued with it. It strikes me, really strikes me, that the only person in the whole of scripture who does actually preach and promise health, wealth, and prosperity in return for worship is Satan to Jesus in the wilderness. What's our idea of God's blessing? Is it a little bit closer to Satan's idea? 
or to Christ's idea? Is it in the gift? Is it in the health, the wealth, the prosperity? Or is it in the giver? Is it in Isaac? Or is it in God? Is it being faithful to God in all of life? Folks, is sickness, poverty, and austerity a sign of God's displeasure or absence? No. No. Not if that is how you know your faith is genuine. Because we know that in all those things, all those things, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. Folks, who do you think genuinely has a more credible profession of faith? The guy who shows up to church when everything's going well, cares nothing for Christ, and sings without any hint of irony, all to Jesus I surrender, and then goes off in the huff because he doesn't get what he wants, because if God was real, I would have got X, Y, and Z. Him? Or how about the woman who comes to worship God even though she has been through the mill and sings with tears in her eyes, I will cling to the old rugged cross and I will exchange it someday for a crown. Folks, the genuineness of our faith, of your faith, should be the number one concern for you today. Yes, there are other things we should be concerned about. Rent, mortgage, bills, whatever. But folks, what do you believe Because if the gifts or the desire for the gifts are keeping you from the giver, they ain't blessings, they're curses. In the trials and the tests, what is it that we actually believe? Do you believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Do you believe that God substituted that Lamb for you? Because if you don't, please wake up. Your faith is counterfeit. Your faith is dead. And you will one day wake up in hell. It could be your next breath. Who knows? In this story of Abraham's trial and his test, his faith was not in some fluffy, vague, too blessed to be stressed bunk. Abraham's faith was in the one true living God. And by faith, by faith, Abraham was counted as righteous. God will get you through those trials and those tests. Sometimes we hear a well-meaning phrase, God only gives us the trials that he knows we can handle. All due respect, I don't think that's true. That emphasizes our strength and our will, our mindset. God gives us the trials and the tests that we need for our faith. God will see us through it. Because God has given us the Lamb of God who has taken away our sin to bring us into his kingdom. We have his grace, we have his sacrifice, and we are washed in his blood. And one day, we will one day stand before him in honor, in glory, and in beauty. 
We're going to close in a couple of minutes uh, with the old rugged cross. But please, folks, as we're singing, think, think about the words that are coming out of your mouth. I will exchange it. I will exchange the old rugged cross for a crown. Will you exchange the old rugged cross for a crown? Do you have the old rugged cross to exchange for a crown? Is that true of you? Folks, please seriously think about what we're doing here and about who we are worshipping.